0: So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.
1: Hello and welcome to Film Chat, a podcast all about Lincoln Hawk, a struggling trucker who arm wrestles on the side to make a bit of extra cash while trying to rebuild his life. Hawk's estranged wife, Christina, who is very ill, asks that Hawke pick up their son, Danny Moran, who he hasn't seen for ten years from military school. Danny initially distrusts Hawk, but starts to bond with him as they travel together, particularly after he saves Danny from kidnappers sent by me, Danny's rich, mean grandfather. They arrive at the hospital, but Christina has died. Danny blames Hawk and goes to live with me, his grandfather, and which leads to further misfortune for our trucker hero when he tries to break into my mansion to get to Danny and ends up thrown in jail. Once released, Hawk decides to enter the World Arm Wrestling Championship in Las Vegas, hoping to take the $100,000 prize, buy a new larger semi-truck and start his own trucking company. Standing in the way of that new life and a reconciliation with little Danny are me and 500 giant armed arm wrestlers, including the legendary Bull Hurley. At least... That's what I would be saying if this were a adaptation of the 1987 film Over the Top, starring Sylvester Stallone. Instead, this is a much less exciting podcast in which two men talk to each other about films, record it, and hope for the best. I'm Sam Foster, and joining me, a plucky kid with a good heart looking to reconnect with his father, Danny Moran.
2: Hello. What does BFG stand for? Bodacious film, guys. Brotherly fatuous garbling. Brilliant fun gadabouts. No stands for Big Friendly Giant, which, coincidentally, is the film Sam will be reviewing this week. Meanwhile, I will be telling the tale of How I Saw Tale of Tales, the lush Italian fantasy film which stars three of the planet's sexiest stars, Salma Hayek, Vincent Cassell, and Toby Jones. Whoa, cool, I have a on my hands, Toby Jones. We also discuss the news of an unexpected spin-off film and a crazy comedy take on one of literature's most enduring characters. No, it's not Beowulf. <laughs> Don't think it's it's not Beowulf. Okay. All of which should leave me just enough time before my latest impression: Liam Neeson stuck in a washing machine watching the finale of season four of The Wire.
1: Wow, oh, that's an ambitious impression. Oh no, no, no.
2: Ah, I'm not crying. It's the detergent. Oh.
1: <laughs> I was wondering when the washing machine was going to come into the impression, but you brought it in. I worked it in, man. Nice. Films, 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 lots of films, films, films,
2: films, films, These good films, bad films, fun films, sad films, films we love, weird films, Lars Montreux films,
1: old films, new films, some John Woo films, films that star Peter Finch, films by David Lynch, films, short films, six hours long,
2: of films up to your gills with films, 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 movies. Are you feeling comfortable? Film chat has begun.
1: Okay, we've got a message from James Andrews. Welcome back to the podcast, James. It's cool to have you writing again. He says, saw the Greek 2015 comedy Chevalier at the ICA the other week. Highly recommended for anyone who loves a bit of critical exploration of 21st century fragile masculinity. Six highly powered but emotionally stunted Greek dudes find themselves wifeless, holidaying on lavish yacht out on the Aegean Sea. Such a concentration of testosterone, wealth, pride and terrible communicative abilities inevitably leads them hastily to the comparison of the size of their penises, figuratively at first and literally later on. Bickering at dinner over which of them is the best and how such a title could be quantified Their trip soon descends into one extensive series of farcical competitions in which every possible opportunity is seized upon for them to compare their masculine prowess. Some great comic performances that delicately balance stone-cold manliness with clown-like absurdism. I liked it partially because of how it managed to sustain a pretty simple premise for such a long time whilst retaining its hilarity throughout. They milked that prostate for all it was worth, but I never got bored. I also thought it was a sensitively executed critique of masculine obsessive competitiveness, not only as ridiculous, but also as a kind of claustrophobic cabin fever that none of them has the capacity to escape from. Apparently the patriarchy oppresses men too? Such nuance was probably only achieved because it was directed by a woman, Athena Rachel Sangari. Lots of delicious lingering arty shots of the Aegean coast to make up for the lack of tits and booty too. Seems to be showing at the Art House crouch end for the rest of August. Wow. Wow.
2: Exciting, sounding movie. I had not heard of it. Had you heard of it? I had not. I was gonna just comment that. I was very impressed you managed to read that out. A lot of long words with alliterations, Oof. K sounds. Yeah, that was that was like a radio tightrope. Thanks, walk. man. Thanks. I stumbled a few times, but I'm
1: sure you can edit it edit that out.
2: What stumbling sound? You didn't stumble once. <laughs> you're right. I don't know what I,
1: I don't know what I mean. Um Yeah, sounds interesting. That description of it reminded me a little bit of Of Us. Of us. Uh, yeah, no, I was going to say that it reminds me of that um, Swedish movie that you went to see that I didn't. Force see. Force majeure,
2: force majeure about masculinity. That's more fragile masculinity. Isn't yeah, it? we were complaining last week about maybe being a bit tired of these sort of macho movies, but I'm a big right. fan of the undercutting the macho movies. Yeah, exactly. Actually, so. yeah, it's something that we've
1: talked about before because that's one of the things we liked about *The Man from U.N.C.L.E.* is yeah. that it was um, sort of macho mascul- men who are like don't seem like they have so much to prove. And exactly. They're just a bit of feat yeah um be secure masculinity guys and that's that's also actually about the ridiculous um nature of competitiveness between men and to an extent so no as, one's made as a, a sort of allegory for the cold war yeah so maybe this is like you know this uh greek movie is like the indie equivalent of the man from uncle directed by guy Ritchie.
2: <laughs> that's something no one's ever said <laughs> <laughs> nothing else yeah that's what, that's what gives our podcast cachet, you know? These kind of crazy connections or you could draw. Yeah, highbrow to lowbrow. That's yeah. why it's so brilliant. Sounds I'm going like to check fun. it out, James, on your recommendation. Yeah, I'm going to watch this and I'm gonna report back to you. If anyone else even suggested
1: suggested this, I'd be like, fuck off. But fuck because it's off. from James, I'm like, get, yeah. get the fuck in. Get the fuck in. <laughs> <laughs> that's me talking to myself, talking about wanting to see this movie.
2: Thanks, James. Thank you, James. Great message. Another bit of correspondence. Chris Young got in touch to link us to an interesting article on The Guardian. He says, Hi, Film Chat. I was interested in what you thought of this, in my opinion, quite strange article. I haven't seen the new David Brent film, but I'm guessing the reason Brent is looked down upon is not because he is old. It's because he's a dick. And then he linked us to an article by Catherine Shawad, who is the film editor for The Guardian, I think online, maybe in print as well. And the article was entitled "Young People Are Wrongly Targeting Their Anger Against the Older Generation." The latest Ricky Gervais and Kevin Spacey movies are anthems for a brutal use permitted and growing loathing of elderly people. Gosh, strong words. And basically, the article uh, Nine Lives" has just come out this week, which is we referenced on last episode where Kevin Spacey becomes a cat. Yeah, and some sort of like he's like an old billionaire and he's like doesn't appreciate his
1: family, and he learns to appreciate his family. So it's like being a cat being a cat so it's a bit like mrs doubtfire but like he turns to a cat instead of like disguising himself as an old woman
2: exactly and the david brent movie is about david brent uh launching this sort of tour and hiring young people to be his backing band yeah and just being a bit old and embarrassing but firstly i
1: find it quite funny the idea that there's any social relevance to nine lives
2: <laughs> like <laughs> no one is gonna, no see one's this, gonna, see no one's gonna see this film
1: <laughs> so the idea that like it's sort of. In, is indicative of how the youth are thinking today or something like that. It's like quite comical and of itself and um yeah i don't know do you think that uh on the road is legitimizing the mockery of old people by the
2: young or something no i think it's just not understanding the premise of a comedy <laughs> it's a bit like would you have a problem with like a christmas carol or something yeah you know, the whole point is that he's a dick and he learns the meaning you know the the wrongs of his ways that's a phrase people use and nine lives just sounds like a similar thing cranky old man learns to he's missing out on life yeah but his age isn't really part of it it's just that he's a dick and learns not to be a dick similarly ricky gervais i guess there's something in the comedy in that like he's past it but it's not like a contempt it's because he's untalented and not funny and you know a tit yeah and and also (laughs) it's not like these movies are made by angry young
1: people like they're made by middle-aged white people clearly you the know? new Xavier
2: Dolan movie. <laughs> Nine lives. Shows nothing but contempt. <laughs> it's so weird. Like, Yeah, I think that um, basically she uses this as a segue into talking about Brexit where, you know... Because people blame blame the older generation for voting generation, out. Yeah. Uh, and just segues into a whole sort of meaningless 500 words i feel that Catherine had a deadline and an article she had to write and uh this was the only thing that she could sort of conjure out of a somewhat lackluster week at the uh cinema maybe or
1: maybe she wanted to write about how she feels that all oh, people are being unfairly blamed for brexit and someone's like you're really gonna need to find a film you know way to tie this in because you'll be writing for the film section or something like that so she was like okay I think if you scanned the um, listings in any given week, you could probably find some movie about like a middle-aged white guy who's portrayed as an idiot.
3: Yeah, it's
1: pretty well mined. The and, reason that, that that happens so much is because those guys are in movies like all the time. Because those, those are people guys who are making write... the movies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So um, I don't. I think if anything, it's an indication of how narrow our cinematic landscape is that they're all, they will star these old white guys. you know. Yeah. We don't really need to worry about their depiction. <laughs>
2: Um, I just want to read the final paragraph. There's something up a bit of our article. She says, Young Robins kill the old in the winter, the saying used to go. It was wrong. They don't. That was just a misinterpretation of bird behavior based on a human assumption that such a dynamic was the natural order. Robins kill their own only in territorial disputes. They're not like people. Let's hope we're not on the brink of a turf war. It's like, Jesus, Catherine. It's like, what do you Incredible. mean it's going to happen? We're going to start murdering the old of Logan's Run style dystopian future well she's not old so she'd be all right she'd be all right she'll maybe all right, she's,
1: she's probably worried about her parents being like murdered by the young in some kind of brexit revenge <laughs> scenario superhero films announced casting rumors leaking out Emma Chamberlain's film is hated paul thomas anderson's is fated meryl streep's oscar tips. matt damon's in a viral vid michael bay's made
2: So the other day, Birth Movies Death, which is a great film website, I would highly recommend it for your movie news and reviews, broke the story that John Turturro, who was filming a film called Going Places, um, there's a bit more news about that, is that it's actually something of a spin-off of The Big Lebowski, and John Turturro will be reprising his role of Jesus Quintana. The Jesus. The Jesus, the sort of crazy former... uh, Child molester or something, or like, did Is he? He a former child molester? <laughs> I just thought he was a the... sex offender or something. Was he a Is flasher? He? There's a God, whole sort of. I don't remember his backstory. I just remember he's in the rival bowling team. Okay, he might not be. His crimes not be that bad, but something like he had to go. <laughs> <A peanut butter. laughs> it's like there's some weird subplot about this flashback of him going from house to house. He has to introduce everybody in the neighborhood that he's like a sex offender. Right, Maybe not a child me- molester. I don't remember that. He's. A... I don't remember that. Bit. I don't know. Something like that. Anyway. Um, there were rumours that the Cohen brothers might make a spin-off movie for years, and now it's sort of... Tudor has sort of taken that on board himself. Um, it's a film that stars him, Bobby Carnavali, Audrey Tattoo, and Susan Sarandon, which is a pretty cool cast. And the film is a remake of a 1974 comedy, Les Values Versus. How do you pronounce this, Sam? Les Valzers? Les Valzers! Something like that. Which is a film about... Two guys, presumably D'Toro and Carnavali, competing to give a woman, who would be Audrey Tattoo, her first orgasm. Obviously, she's roped into their hijinks. And Sarandon ends up in their company playing a criminal who just got out after a long stint in prison. Yeah. Sounds
1: weird. It's it's an absolutely bizarre and intriguing prospect. I don't think I've ever heard of a movie that was a remake of one film and a spin off from another film at the same time. (laughs) And that's quite, even that itself is pretty unusual. But um, you've
2: seen this original film, right?
1: Yeah, i I watched Les Valzers like quite a long time Les ago. It's probably probably watched about ten years ago. But it's so French and so seventies that it's quite hard to imagine <laughs> how it would be updated and turned American. The premise obviously sounds you, like a little problematic, you can imagine. Yeah. They're basically from what I can recall, it's Gerard Depardieu and some other dude. And um yeah, there's the they're these sort of two sort of slightly amoral just kind of love and life heading about the countryside doing whatever they want breaking laws kind of thing and they end up with this woman who is almost like borderline mentally disabled you know thinking back on it like she has very little agency and she just kind of goes along with whatever they want to do and like has sex with them both and stuff but the, the the way that sex is portrayed in the thing is very like it's just very sort of offhand and perfunctory and they just kind of like do it and they're both really frustrated that um they can't like make her orgasm um and uh there's one bit i remember when uh they they eventually spoiler they do make her orgasm eventually (gasps) or one of them gets like one of them manages it or something like that and she's so delighted at having had an orgasm for the first time she's like um, runs up to the guys and she's like i did it i did it oh no wait no wait let me take this all back <laughs> i'm remembering this scenario more fully she ends up having sex with some weird nerdy guy who's like he's who's not like one a, of the two not one of the two you know because they're both like super manly muscular lads uh, but she goes off and has sex with this like nervous virgin man and it's for some reason he makes her come in a hilarious his luck in a sort of yeah yeah hilarious turn of events and so she runs out, and she's, like, really, really excited and, like, happy. And she goes up to him, and she's like, wow, I'm so pleased. I've, you know, had an orgasm. This is brilliant. And they just, like, they're pissed off because he did it when they couldn't. And they just, like, pick her up and throw her in a river. Um, wow. So, uh, and, you know, it's hysterical, obviously. Um, so, you know, troubling uh, undertones in a modern Jeez. modern audience. And it's funny because... John Turtero has just made a movie about him like banging hot chicks all the time. Fading Um, Gigolo. Fading Gigolo, exactly. In which he is um, some sort of super sex god guy uh, pimped out by Woody Allen. Bizarre film. (laughs) 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 Um, And... uh, um and so he's obviously got a bit of an oeuvre going he's like what do i what do i like to do in films uh i like to play a spanish um character from the big lebowski i enjoy doing that i also quite like uh uh, fucking chicks and being a sex god so i'm gonna do that and that's gonna be my next
3: film
2: cool cool
1: um why not why not Susan sarandon and bobby cannavale were both in romance and cigarettes i'm um observing from this uh both movies both death great. i'm a
2: huge fan of both those actors yeah awesome. and
1: and romance and cigarettes is a really good john Turturro movie so you know that he can he can do good stuff and they've obviously worked with him and like everyone in that movie is really really charming and good fun and i i, I think that he does i think Fading Jiggle just about managed to get away with its like very creepy um like male wish fulfillment and... thing yeah it was just about okay very it was a very odd film um but i think he you know he can i can imagine him just about pulling off this thing without it being too uncomfortable to watch but i can also imagine it being a disaster so we'll see so it's it's called <laughs> it's called going places which sounds like he'll <laughs> leave her just it off or it will be a complete disaster <laughs> <laughs> that's my optimistic uh take on it i'm looking forward to it um but yeah, do you think Going Places sounds like some sort of Steve Martin comedy from like the 80s or something? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, instead, it's this uh, strange sex offender um, romp thing. Yeah. Cool. Maybe it'd be great. Good luck to Turo. Good luck. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, Will Ferrell and John C. Riley have had quite a successful on-screen partnership together. They um, starred together in Talladega Nights and Step Brothers. They faced, did. Um, Adam McKay. Directed or just related? Yeah, rated, directed uh, and written. Yeah. Um, and uh, they have got a new project shaping up where they're going to team up once again. This time, they're going to be Sherlock Holmes and John Watson. <laughs> the film is called Holmes and Watson. I'm already laughing. And uh, it's interesting. Like, I feel like if there's one thing the world doesn't necessarily <laughs> need, it's like, A, more bro comedies, and B, more um, Holmes characters wandering around. Sure. Um, we've had so many Sherlock Holmes recently. It's just inundated. Absolutely flooded with them. Uh, and now we've got another one. And, uh, yeah, Farrell is Holmes, and John C. Riley is Watson. I kind of assumed it would be the other way around. Really? Maybe yeah, I don't know. Well, Will Farrell is more... Um, I, th- I, th- I mean, they're both sort of play dummies, right? Quite frequently,
2: they sometimes do, yes.
1: So I guess maybe they were both vying for Watson. They were like arguing over <laughs> who gets to be Watson. They're both good at playing idiots. But I'd I th- be- I see
2: John C. Riley is more of a sort of proper actor than Wolf Ferrell, so I well, feel like he could do. I'm Watford, stealing. Yeah. Uh, Dan, Null, one of our regular correspondents' of opinion, where he's like, it's got this thing like John C. Riley is like a sort of genius actor. You can do anything. Yeah, he's like it can be in any type of film and just fit into it. It can like be and we talk about Kevin and like uh, stepbrothers, yeah, and just like completely, just, hard or and just like, yeah. yeah, just completely matches the tone of the film somehow, yeah, as one of the sort of genius character actors. They were talking about John C. Redd a bit on the Canon
1: podcast recently when they were discussing Boogie Nights, um, and uh, and saying that at the time when Boogie Nights was made, he his career was entirely dramatic and he has this funny role in Boogie Nights as this sort of um, best buddy porn star guy, yeah, yeah, and uh. And since then, his career has been like much more skewed towards these sort of comic roles. And he is sort of a funny-looking guy. He's got kind of like funny voice and stuff. He's very Irish-looking. What you Irish need? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think he's a, he's like obviously a serious and really excellent actor. But um, maybe he just like gravitates towards these. Um, he can do anything. Yeah, he can do whatever the hell he wants. He's a bit like I mean, he's a bit like Philip Seymour Hoffman, maybe. And he? he's um, but he just yeah. hasn't taken the same career path. Anyway, are you are you tempted by this prospects that seem like well, tantalizing to you?
2: There has been previous comedy takes on Sherlock Holmes. There was um, the Billy Wilder film, Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. Is that right? Or is it, there's like Private Life of Sherlock Holmes and then Sherlock Holmes' younger brother. These two famous comedy takes on it, Or like Holmes is like a like an idiot brother, which is funny. But I think why he's perhaps good for a comedic take is that like, and why he's such a sort of enduring character is that he's sort of like an archetype Sherlock yeah. Holmes rather than a character, perhaps. Yeah, or like he's just the his the Sherlock Holmes character is so influential that like, every detective is either him or Philip Marlowe. And yeah. so I imagine that's a good starting point from which to subvert it. Yeah, the sort of um,
1: slightly uh, standoffish, antisocial s- genius. savant genius is yeah. like yeah, every other television detective, basically. So um, yeah, there's plenty of material to draw on for your
2: comedy take. Exactly. I mean, uh, I guess it's like... I hope they do really bad British accents. I imagine that'd be funny. Yeah, that could be pretty funny. His impression of David Bowie is really good. I mean, like Wolf sort from.
1: of like in Get Hard, where they play the Beatles or like that kind of thing. Uh, sort
2: of... Walk Hard, Walk Hard, yeah. Get Hard, Get good. Hard is another Will Ferrell movie, right? Yeah, where he had to go to prison. <laughs> yeah, it's him Kevin Hart is like Kevin incredibly Hart. offensive. Yeah, yeah. That's Same that's director as Get Hard, this one. Oh really? Yeah, it's uh, the Holmes and Watson thing. Um, what's his name? Uh, like one of the Cohens, but not the one of the Cohens. Um, Ethan Cohen. Eaton Cohen. Yeah. yeah he wrote like garfield and there's a story that apparently bill murray for it was ethan cohen <laughs> he signed up <laughs> for the film and it was like no it's ethan cohen it's spelled differently it just looks very similar on the page and people are like, wondering like is this guy's career just down to the fact that he sounds a bit like a very celebrated filmmaker and he just sort of locked his way for industry by people that's mistaking amazing him. And the cohen is spelled slightly differently
1: as well yeah, Cohen H
2: in the middle. Um. Yeah. But I like those two. I think it could be good.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those, like a lot of these comedies kind of live or die just by the strength of the gags, you know? The the premise will be very simple, but the if those gags are good enough, then it will work. Mm. So good luck to him in their gag crafting. I guess we'll have to see how, see how it turns out. Good luck, guys. Good luck. It's nice ending every news item by wishing uh, good luck to whoever was mentioned. Good luck, guys. Good luck. Good luck.
2: And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw, was it staggeringly
1: brilliant? Was it we poor? How did Danny form a judgment? We're about to hear
2: his thoughts. If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off. So it's a bit of a low in the cinema schedules this week. All the big, huge movies have sort of been and gone, and I think we're gearing up for the second wave of those films. So I took the opportunity to watch Tale of Tales, which came out a few months ago, and had a small cinematic release. And was very highly acclaimed and is now on demand. So I was like, I demand to see this now. Yeah. That's not what I said. And internet obliged. It did on iTunes. And I splurged for the H D rental. I was like, I hear this film looks incredible. I gotta see this in H D, by which I mean the seven twenty P is available on this MacBook. Good move. And it was worth it. So this is directed (laughs) by Matteo Garon, who is an Italian director. Who, even though we pronounce that slightly French way, but he's Italian, uh, he directed Gamora a few years ago, which was that adaptation of the book by was it Roberto Savini, the um, expose about all the Italian mafia, the yeah, Gamora. The camera. And it was really, really good. And this is a huge left turn in genre and style of filmmaking. And it's a screen adaptation based on the collection of tales by the poet and courtier Giambattista Basile. I'm sure you're familiar with uh, his work. I am. And his work, The Penta Maron, or Le Conto di Le Conti, which is Tale of Tales, or Entertainment for Little Ones, which is basically, he's the original fairy tale chronicler. Oh, yeah? So he's he, the Italian... he, he predates the Grimm Brothers by Grimm about 150 Brothers. years. Gosh. And a lot of his stories, there's like 50 stories in his collection, and they're like the proto-versions of Rapunzel and Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella and stuff oh, awesome. like that. Okay, But this one is three of those stories which have been fleshed out. One of them is about Sama Hayek and John C. Riley as these king and queen who are unable to conceive, but then a strange necromancer figure tells them how... They can have a child, but it involves eating the heart of a sea monster, obviously. Another the story involves Toby Jones, also playing a king, who gets obsessed with caring for his pet flea and ignores his daughter, who longs to marry a handsome prince. And in the final... It's been done. It's been done. And in the uh, final story, Vincent Cassel uh, plays another king, uh, who has an insatiable thirst for women, who uh, his... Uh, a woman singing and falls in love with her but is unaware that he's actually in love with a pair of elderly seamstresses. Fantastic. I love it. And these three stories weave in and out of each other and take a lot of passion, tragedy and a surprising amount of gore. And here's a clip of the mysterious necromancer telling Salma and John C. Riley how they can have a child.
3: Every new life calls
2: for a life to be lost.
3: The equilibrium of the world must be maintained. Do you understand?
0: I am prepared to die in order to feel life grow inside me.
3: We are speaking of possibility, not certainty. Are you willing to accept the risk?
0: What must we do?
3: Hunt down a sea monster. Cut out its heart and have it cooked by a virgin, but... She must be alone. When your Majesty eats the heart, you will become pregnant instantly.
1: Great! So I, lo- I really like fairy tales. You know, I really like the broad strokes storytelling. Well, I think it's a lot of power to it. you'd love this
2: because it fully indulges in all the opportunities a fairy tale permits you, and it reminded me a bit of The Fool, which is an under but great film, which I would highly recommend, and also some of Terry Gilliam's work, in that it's a big, lush fantasy film where you feel they use the same technology they had 30 years ago, and that uses CGI very sparingly, but they've built massive sets, use these amazing Italian locations and castles, have this gorgeous cinematography, and it's this really rich visual experience. And I wish I'd seen it on the big screen. Mm. Fucked up, Sam. I fucked up watching it on my laptop. And one of the most interesting things about the film is that though it's got this very heightened fairy tale logic to it and mad stuff happens, it doesn't make it any less engaging. And I think it's because even when weird stuff happens, it's played with psychological realism by all the actors and all the actors are fantastic. And that kind of grounds it. And though there's a lot of weird stuff and spectacle in the film, they react like that's just part of the world. So... That kinda, you know Just like how fairy tale characters do. Exactly. Yeah. And that's sort of really entertaining to watch. And the cast are brilliant. I think they've perhaps been cast partly for their physical distinctiveness. And uh like Vincent Cassell looks slightly otherworldly. He's got this brilliant Buster Keaton esque, huge eyes, huge nose, all his features are big. Yeah. It's like someone's drawn him. They're all very
1: individually expressive. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And he is having a great time as this horny French king. Like, it's just like really ramping it up in a way that's hilarious. I loved him. Toby Jones, who I feel is like always in films as like these tiny parts and never gets much to do. And so it's really cool to see him as this sort of dim king who's obsessed with this flea. A lot of like (laughs) physical comedy from him, which is brilliant. And Summer Simile is somebody who I think got a lot of dramatic chops, but doesn't Hollywood doesn't really allow her to do that very often. And she's got this really great steely quality as this queen who's gets a bit too obsessed with having a baby, and it's awesome. They're great, and the cinematography by Peter Sosnitsky, who was the cinematographer on *Empire Strikes Back*. This guy's like 75. Cool. I was like, you're crushing it, Peter. You've peaked. And um, it's a real tactile world. And I, it's partly cinematography, partly the production design. And it had a cool thing where the world feels slightly underpopulated. It is like a fairy tale writ large where there's huge castles. And it's not like quite sure how the world operates, but you kind of just go with it. Yeah. Does that make sense? It's a bit like in fairy tales where they just mention there's like, there's a farmer and there's a king and there's another guy. And it's like, who else is in this world? Yeah. It's got that kind of quality to it. Yeah, it's like... um. The
1: interesting thing about fairy tales is that the 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 characterization is like barely reaches the level of archetype <laughs> where instead it's just label, yeah, you know it's just like old crone, and like that's the character,
2: well, yeah, that's another sort of interesting part of the film is that fairy tales are allegorical in nature, and it's c credit of the film that it doesn't offer up one simplistic moral to the the stories and it's possible to have many different interpretations from the film but in a way which doesn't seem like needlessly ambiguous, just part of the sort of complexity of it. And I, what I did like about it and what I took away from it was that it had a very subversive take on the happily ever after ending where mm. people sort of get what they want, but then it's like a sort of madman quote, what do you want after happiness? There's a moment for more happiness. And they get what they want. And then like uh, five minutes later, it's like, I need more. Yeah, I'm never happy. Humans, they're just driven by greed and another fairy tale quality the movie indulges in very successfully is that in a fairy tale you don't have to set up things in a narrative that you wouldn't normal stories so uh well giving away but like something like snow white the sort huntsman just turns up at the end you're like who's this guy he hasn't set up in act one it's a bit of a deus ex machina yeah but you're like fine and in a similar way in this film stuff happens um, you know situations are resolved or changed in certain ways which is slightly mental but you're like great it just is part of the fun why not why not have a witch turn up yeah yeah and i think the reason this all hangs together as one film is that the direction is supremely confident by matteo garon and it just like carries you through all these weird twists and going back to the coen brothers i remember hearing an interesting quote by them was They describe directing as tone management, just managing the tone throughout a film. And what's perhaps most impressive about Tale of Tales is that it manages the switch between tones, not just between the individual stories, but within the stories itself. So, for example, the Vincent Cassell storyline, he is giving a broad, almost pantomime, like ridiculous performances as Randy French King. But the two actresses playing the old crone, Shirley Henderson and Hayley Carmichael, give these very nuanced quite poignant performances surely since not old they're all layered in uh, makeup but rather than that being totally jarring it just actually adds to the film and it sort of um the way i read it was that it just underlines the fact that this king lives in a completely different world to his subjects yeah and they just added more entertainment value and didn't detract from anything i was like great that's bit funny, it's a bit sad there's a giant there's a sea monster amazing yeah so yeah i would Really recommend it. It manages to occupy this realm between thematic depth and out-and-out surrealism. Yeah. Where it's like, it's all this amazing imagery, but it feels like in service of something. It's, and even when it's not, it's entertaining. It's like, why not have Summer Herky a uh-huh. heart? This is awesome. This is better than Mother's Day. <laughs> this is what I, the benchmark by which I judge all films. Yeah, um, that sounds great. Yeah, and it's available on iTunes. Splurge for the HD, 449
3: time for a break from all the film chat have a cup of tea maybe make a quick
1: snack and tell friends a friend so you know where she's at right that's enough
2: now back to film chat sam i watched a proper film for grown-ups what did you watch this week i watched a stupid film for babies oh no. um,
1: hey No, it was another adaptation of source material aimed at children, I guess you could say. That would be the link between them. Um, It's the BFG, the new Spielberg movie adapted from the Roald Dahl classic tale. It's about a young girl called Sophie who's played in this movie by Ruby Barnhill. Um, She is an orphan, and she's in the orphanage, and one night she goes up to her balcony and spots a giant wandering around, played by Mark Rylance. He is worried about giants being discovered by humans, So he snatches her up, takes her off to giant land. Uh, Fortunately, he turns out to be big and friendly um, and the two of them get along. They start a friendship um, and threatening their fledgling um, friendship are other, bigger, more man-eating giants, including the terrifying Flesh Lump Eater, played by Jermaine Clement. Here's a clip of the big friendly giant chatting to Sophie about his job. Where are you going?
3: Uh, to... To work.
1: What do you do for work?
3: Oh, now you're asking me to tell you wopsy big secrets.
1: I won't tell a soul. How could I anyway? I'm stuck here for the rest of my life.
3: I catch dreams. I want to come. Yeah, well, very late. No you is staying here no i'm not yes you are you as human being and human being is like straw buncles and cream to those giants out there so you're gonna stay in a nice safe place right here
1: (laughs) catching dreams and all that playing them through trumpets into the heads of people Had,
2: had you read the book as a child
1: yeah, I definitely, I either read it as a child or listened to it. I'm not completely sure. Um, I sort of remember the vague outline of the story and I didn't, hadn't revisited it since I was a wee little babe, I think. So, um, uh, uh, so I was going in, you know, knowing essentially um, what the setup was, but not completely remembering how everything played out. And I really enjoyed it. I thoroughly liked it. It's a charming and refreshingly low-key fable. The visual effects are quite stunning. Um, as well which helps and it has that kind of storybook quality that you'd want from an adaptation of the bfg with maybe a little less emphasis on the roald dali and dark undercurrent that goes through so much of is there uh, his work. is there mild peril um yeah but it's like pretty mild yeah. i would say despite the fact that the villain character is called flesh lump um and all the giants have like comically vicious and horrifying sounding names yeah. and they like eat humans I think it's probably the most gentle film you could make about man-eating giants. Okay. Um, it's a It was a really refreshing movie to see in terms of the pacing of a big-budget film. And you're so used to seeing now uh, big-budget movies that are really frantic and constantly demanding your attention and getting worried if uh, that your attention might slip at any second. You know, the sort of J.J. Abrams style, or yeah. like Marvel movies, or like Star Trek Beyond, which I saw recently, where pretty much uh, like it's like bang 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 stuff is happening all the time and this movie i think partly because of spielberg's approach and partly because of the nature of the source material which is not particularly heavy on plot they are happy to just let it kind of stretch out and it's almost like quite a languid film and it's more concerned with the relationship between sophie and the bfg and with the kind of atmosphere of general wonder and amiability than it is with driving the story forwards. And at times it almost feels like kind of a hangout movie <laughs> where um, it's just like Sophie, the BFG, they're chilling, they're shooting the shit. Yeah. Um. Smoking and Smoking you... a doobie. Yeah. <laughs> Listen um, to Leonard Skinner's... Yeah, I mean, like, it is a pretty trippy movie where they go and catch dreams together and stuff. So Yeah, it's true. that's true. Probably, that's probably what Roald Dahl was doing when he was writing it.
2: Yeah, off his tits. Um
1: But it works really well. It's very, because it's Spielberg, it's directed with like supreme confidence and you always know that you're in good hands. And uh, the relationship between Sophie and BFG works extremely well. And it's one of the movie's big strengths because I think it could easily be irritating. And I can very easily imagine a Virgil's movie, particularly Sophie, given that she has to act opposite a CGI character for like most of the film. And she is relatively broadly drawn, kind of plucky kid heroine. And those kinds of characters are so often unbearably irritating in Hollywood movies. Yeah. And there aren't, like, that many great child actresses out there, you know, or actors. But Ruby Barnhill, who plays Sophie, is, like, really brilliant. And it's very well-pitched in that you, you know, she's very, like, charming and friendly and lovable, but um, not saccharine. Doesn't feel like she's sort of pushing the cutesiness. Cool. um all of the filmmakers are pushing that aspect of it and it's very, i think mean, that's very effective and that's an important aspect of a roald dahl adaptation as well because um his uh that like that huge factor of his kids is never like overemphasized wow well,
2: exactly he's a bit of dose of reality in all his books yeah yeah but like that's what makes
1: roald dahl so effective as a as a storyteller for children is that it, it's almost like from a child's perspective of the world where you don't need to like play up the adorability of children because yeah. kids are just kids and like you know stuff is um both wonderful and terrifying and that's what he's so good at and i think the movie is pretty good at that as well and mark rylance is excellent as a bfg he does a good line um as you heard in the clip in that kind of um the sort of nonsense talk that the giant has sort of like makes up half the words orange nadsat sort of (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah it's kind of like that um and uh He is sort of... It's like a borderline caricature of, like, a twinkly, avuncular old guy. You know, the twinkle in his eye is, like, blindingly um, (laughs) apparent. Blinded by twinkle. (laughs) Yeah. Um, He's just, yeah, like, friendly with a capital F, literally. (laughs) Um, Big with a capital B. (laughs) Capital G. You got it. Every letter capitalized. (laughs) Yeah. But... You know, I mean, I I could I could a more cynical version of myself might have found it irritating almost um, how loveable he is, but I think it was actually fantastic, very nice, very nice, very nice, and um, yeah, they have a remarkable amount of on-screen chemistry given that it was all done by computers, and the the animation is also really brilliant. I think that they they are getting increasingly good at the uh, the mocap thing, and also the fact that um, it is not a photorealistic human they're trying to evoke, like in you know, um, I know Polar Express or some like weird effort from yesteryear and it's just you know, it's a heightened character sure. so it's like giant ears and everything. And the the characters are extremely expressive and also somewhat cartoonish, um, and that like delicate balance is is um nailed very well. Cool. I think that there's a definite Spielbergian gloss over things that means that the more well there's like there's a real undercurrent of loneliness to the story. She's like an orphan and he is essentially a bullied younger brother of a bunch of other like meaner giants yeah who are just they're basically kind of like you know a bunch of dick lads who like push him around and uh that's very much present in the story but i think that this kind of it's so wholesome that it's like a little gloss over.
2: well i was gonna say this is the last script of the recently deceased elizabeth matheson yeah i just read, wrote, i just read this day he wrote et he wrote et which is very much a film about loneliness yeah. and the lonely guy who doesn't have a friend this sort of you know supernatural yeah, yeah. presence turns up and it's i guess there's a link there that's true actually yeah yeah there's there's definite thematic link there and
1: uh i think that um ec is also a movie i haven't seen in like years since i was a kid so it's not like really fresh in my mind to compare but i'd say you don't feel it too keenly i think it's just about effective enough that yeah. when, when the you know by the end i was like wrapped up in their relationship and you know it managed to well a few tears from me but um, it's not, like... It's it's a very, very gentle movie. Sure. Um, and there's also this sort of darker theme of um, guilt. Um, and, like, because he collects nightmares as well as dreams. But, like, that... And there's, like, a particular dream that's, like, you know, the dream of no forgiveness or something. I can't remember exactly wow. what it's called. But it's, like, a... Um, that kind of scary aspect to it is... Um, uh, it doesn't hit home particularly. Like there's nothing raw or like hard about it like all of the edges have been have been rounded off the movie so it's you know a little less darling in that in that sense but i liked it a lot it's like extremely well made it's funny where it should be funny and like it, all of the emotions are evoked well you know it's sad when it should yeah, be yeah. sad and uh it does that cool. it does that really excellently and then later on in the movie when they turn up a buckingham palace and a bunch of british familiar faces crop up to um you know make gags and stuff that that stuff all the incredibly time. nuanced portrayals of the british people extremely yeah <laughs> actually what it reminded me of a bit is paddington yeah that it's this picture postcard version of england which doesn't feel too gross like yeah. it's a kind of version of, of england that you'd buy in a souvenir shop um but uh but somehow it's okay you know <laughs> it's just, it's charming enough to be okay rather than sure. just like disgusting it's like our country isn't fucking like this
2: it's like a sort of curve, like you know bucking goes. Duh, 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 duh. yeah yeah. It's, it's exactly like
1: yeah it's exactly like that it's exactly like that penelope Brilliant. wilton plays the queen oh cool and it's, she's very funny i like Penelope um, and rebecca hall and rafe's ball turn up great um yeah you can tell at times that it's a bit like a storybook that's been stretched out beyond the plot that you know like the the bit in buckingham palace like lasts like quite a long time and nothing is really (laughs) happening it's just huge like english moments um but yeah great i i uh i I enjoyed it i think it's a really um a really nice film that does pretty much everything well and um that makes a really refreshing viewing experience after the frenetic blockbusters that you see now
2: cool I'll go That's see it That's my
1: verdict Verdict issued
3: Yesterday I bumped into Imelda and She was up with her dog and we got talking I asked her what she does when she isn't acting She said she likes podcasts for relaxing Imelda Wagner in the mood What do
1: you listen
3: to?
2: I listen to one podcast. I listen to one podcast. podcast. I listen to one podcast. Film chat. Film chat. Film chat. Film chat. Film chat. Film Film chat. Film chat. <laughs> Ended the world of pop culture. He's yeah, Hertzog. Um, Hertzog. He's always interesting fella. He's got a lot of interesting takes on all manner of subjects. And someone asked him what his opinion was on the Kanye West famous video, which yeah. if you haven't seen, depicts Kanye in bed with a variety of women, plus Donald Trump, Kim, for some reason. Uh Trump, Taylor Swift, some famous people. Yeah, not quite sure what the message is. I was like, what does this mean? But well, luckily, you listen. You
1: listen to the album, right? Like. Yeah. What does he talk about other than banging Taylor Swift and
2: that? Uh he talks about banging other women. Is that it? And how he makes them famous. By having sex with them. Yeah. How he's like Dick he's is got like some, some sort of celebrity wand and he sticks right. in somebody and they become famous. It's like that
1: movie with Dane Cook where every woman he sleeps to becomes pregnant, except yeah. like Yeah, it's like good luck. Good Chuck. luck, Chuck. <laughs>
2: good luck, Kanye. <laughs> yeah. Well um, that's the central themes of his his latest uh, album Life of Pablo is sort of loss and regret and musing about life and reaching a crossroads in his journey as an artist, and also how great, how big his dick is, and how great he is at, like, fucking women. Yeah. Those are the two poles from which the songs are sourced. That's the
1: absolute foundation, which you can't scrub away, you know? No matter what he's rapping about, he's got to also rap a bit about his big um, fame... uh, Fame Fame-inducing dick. (laughs) Fame-inducing dick. Um, Yeah, so um, someone, uh, I think it was a journalist called Gen Yamato can't remember who she what she writes for but anyway she got um Werner Herzog in to give his verdict on famous and he's got some quite analytical thoughts about it quite academic he seems to quite enjoy the video
3: no uh question uh, all the persons that you see in this video are they all real you it real donald trump or is it a no. Is it a, a fake Donald Trump? No, Muhammad it's, it's and, definitely not
0: Donald and, Trump. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. But they look, well, well, for example, uh, um, yes, that's, that's an interesting thing that the uh, um, internet can create doppelgangers easily. And uh, the most interesting thing for me. Uh, Brilliant.
1: Brilliant. The man is an absolute genius. So, this sparked off Werner. Um, he enjoyed doing that. I think he likes analyzing pop culture things. He's a kind of latter day Slavoj Žižek. Um, yeah, absolutely. He's, he's, that's the sort of the area he's moving into. Um, and so, he's done a, a variety of other commentaries on um, all, summits, manner of videos. all manner of interesting uh, videos, which you might not have thought had that much meaning in them, but um, Herzog is going to um, explain them to you in a whole new light. So. Yeah, so we'll leave you with that. Just leave a you bit. that.
2: Quick reminder, come to our quiz on the 24th. That's this Wednesday at The Social. Yeah. Check Facebook for details. Just go to The Social on Little Portland Street. It's going to be fantastic. It's going to be sick. I've
1: taken the first few days off work that week. <laughs> really? Yeah. I'm just going to be living and breathing quiz prep. Brilliant. Three solid days in the bunker, writing questions. Awesome. Going stir crazy, but producing incredible quiz materials. Awesome. so yeah I'm here yeah, look forward to it look forward to seeing you there okay okay guys
3: bye goodbye is this a party there is music there is dancing there are balloons and yet there is something uncanny here The walls are bare and bright, like in a waiting room. When we look into the eyes of the women, there is no mirth. Look closer. She pets the cute doggy, but it is a stuffed animal. She pedals the oversized bicycle, but it does not move. She strums the banjo, but it makes no sound. The music is relentless, without peaks or troughs. It turns and tightens like a rack. This is a false party with the naked women helpless prisoners nothing can ever change here it is a chilling vision of purgatory drake's lover used him for sex and then left him but he still yearns for her he has ensconced himself in a mesmeric cube of plastic. A solitary disco where he twists and jerks around like a tormented marionette. This is no refuge. The walls we build cannot keep out the past. His phone is how she used to find him. Now it is how he finds her. The links created by technology become chains. Our smartphones are porous. Through them, our lives seep out and others trickle in. Drake's phone is a fatal chink in his armour. Even in this lonely place, wrapped in layers of warm protective clothing, he is as vulnerable as a lamb.